0: This is a special podcast rebroadcast in the wake of the passing of economist Alan Krueger. Earlier this week, we learned some unfortunate news; uh, he took his own life, and we were deeply saddened by the loss. I wanted to revisit the interview I did with him in the spring of 2015. It was a fascinating conversation. So much has changed since then. Uh, the economy has clearly gotten much better. Uh, We're further away from the financial crisis, but we discussed his background in economics, the Federal Reserve, his research on minimum wage. I I was astonished uh, at what a fantastic conversation he was and and just privileged to spend time with Alan and discussing what he knew best, which was economics. So with no further ado, my conversation with the late, great Alan Kruger from the spring of 2015. My guest today is a. What can I say about Professor Alan Kruger of Princeton? He was the chief economist for the Treasury Department and assistant secretary of of Treasury. He was also chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Uh, Professor Kruger, welcome to Bloomberg. My pleasure. So I didn't want to spend too much time waxing eloquent on your. Uh, curriculum vitae, but suffice it to say, you've pretty much won just about every award you can come up with, at least in the United States, uh, for economics. And you've had a number of just really incredible uh, posts, both within the government and out. Uh, In the early 90s, you were chief economist at the Department of Labor? I was, 1994, 1995. and 1995. And what does the chief economist for um, the Labor Department
1: actually do? That's a good question. Uh, it was a new position. Secretary Reich created it, and I was the second one to hold it. Uh, I was very, Who was the first? First was my good friend Larry Katz from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Larry did a brilliant job, and he left very big shoes to fill. I'll give you an example one of the reasons why secretary reich created the job was he wanted to have involvement with the national economic council which was also a clinton innovation and the way the nec was set up at that time bob rubin was chairman and treasury omb labor commerce uh, were the members so this was like a think tank but with all government representatives who were there to advise the the president and the cabinet It was the uh, place that ran the policy process, Uh and it's different from a think tank because it produced proposals that really mattered, and uh, it had a direct... Connection to the president. So, uh, the way that Bob Rubin ran this process was very organized. Uh, the budget went through the NEC process, um, trade issues went through, and NEC was divided into domestic issues and international issues. Other departments had a separate person who would represent them on domestic and international issues. Mm. Larry Katz was so uh, skilled uh, that he did both. So I had to fill those shoes and do both, which meant being involved in NAFTA uh, as well as uh, uh, domestic issues like the minimum wage. So so what were some
0: of the policies that came out of that uh, economic council? So NAFTA clearly was a, a, a big issue in the 90s.
1: NAFTA was a very big issue. The first Clinton budget, which uh, was after uh, sorry, before I arrived, uh, which I think put us on a much stronger path in the early 1990s. The, the one significant domestic policy that did not come from it was healthcare reform. And I think one of the reasons why health care reform in that period uh, didn't do as well as it should have was because it didn't come through the NEC process.
0: Uh, in other words, the way it was formulated with the thought process of what's the impact, what's the cost, what's the benefit? What, what is the thinking behind how some of these policies are developed?
1: Well, economists have, I think, a very systematic approach to think about poli- to thinking about policy issues. We think about efficiency. We think about equity. We think about what's uh, going to use our resources most efficiently, and we think about what's fair. And we divide issues quite clearly in that way, and we make trade-offs. And um, now it might mean that uh, a lot of our proposals are not politically feasible, but. I think this is a very coherent framework. And the process that was used for healthcare reform was um, much more ad hoc, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, not nearly as systematic.
0: So there's pretty much an ever-going trade-off between what's optimal and what's politically feasible and what's financially doable.
1: Is that sort of the factors that, that get tossed about? Sometimes you hit the sweet spot. and uh, good policy is good politics, and and it's nice when that works out. Uh, Other times, you have to make compromises between what's politically feasible and what will do the most good for the economy. And one of the lessons I learned from having uh, served in uh, the uh, government for five years of my career is that you know, compromise is not such a bad thing. As long as compromise leads to better policy, to improvement for the American people, we shouldn't let the best be the enemy of the good.
0: That, that's the the classic line. So you were at the Labor Department, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics also has a huge group of statisticians, economists, econometric modelers, for people who may not be quite as wonky as some of us are, Tell us what the BLS actually does over the course of
1: any given month or or quarter. The BLS is housed within the Labor Department, but it has a tremendous amount of independence. Uh, For example, there's only one employee of the BLS who's a presidential appointee. That's the um, uh, commissioner. Everyone else is a career civil servant. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, together with the Census Bureau, conducts the monthly household survey, the Current Population Survey, which produces the unemployment rate. It also does a survey of establishments. Uh, Nearly 400,000 establishments are interviewed on a monthly basis. And what is amazing to me about the BLS, those are its two most important products, although it has many others, is that on an ongoing basis, it collects, analyzes, and releases those data every month. And if you think about what an enormous effort that is, and to do it as carefully as they do it is, is quite impressive. And I think they are given a tremendous amount of respect, and they've earned a great deal of credibility because they do it in such a professional way. They collect other data also. Uh, I would highlight the Employment Cost Index, and I think the-
0: Employment Cost Index, what exactly is that?
1: The ECI, Employment Cost Index, is a measure of how much uh, it's costing for employers uh, to pay, pay their workers and it includes not only wages, but also uh, health insurance benefits, pension benefits, vacation time. It's calculated very much like the consumer price index in that the BLS goes back to the same companies quarter after quarter, looks at the same jobs, and looks at what's happening to compensation costs within those very narrow categories.
0: We left off earlier talking about um, uh, the Economic Council as chairman of the president's economic advisors, that's also part of that council. Is that—is that correct?
1: That's right. The chairman of the CEA plays an important role within the National Economic Council. So I think people are
0: aware of um, what the CEA is. They know they're the you as the chairperson is the advisor to the president. But I don't think people have a clue as to how that works, either within the White House. Are you guys proactively suggesting policy? Is the president coming to the council and saying, hey, I have a question about this uh, this minimum wage issue. What does it mean if we raise the minimum How does that work? What's the back and forth
1: with that? It works in both directions. Uh, there are instances where the uh, Council of Economic Advisors would make proposals, typically within the NEC process, where they get vetted and reviewed, uh, and other relevant departments would uh, add to the analysis and help put together the proposal. Uh, and then there are other times where the president says, look, go back to the drawing board, come up with more suggestions in this area. Or, uh, y- you know, the way I think about education is like this. Here's what I think you should develop a proposal on. So it works in both directions. So I was I
0: mentioned the minimum wage earlier, and and you have an expertise in not only uh, labor economics, but you've studied the minimum wage extensively. Let, let's start out with Walmart in February. And then a month later, it was Target and TJ Maxx. And then after that, McDonald's just announced an increase in in their low-wage workers to up the the minimum wage. In fact, they want to pay a dollar above the minimum wage. What does this say about the economy today? What does it say about where we are in the economic cycle?
1: I think it says a couple of things. First of all, when it comes to the labor market, the invisible hand doesn't always work perfectly. Sometimes the invisible hand needs a little bit of help. In the past, when we were in a situation like we are today, where the economy is getting stronger, the job market is uh, clearly tightening, a minimum wage increase helped the labor market to clear. And what we're seeing from companies like McDonald's and from Walmart is they are stepping in and they're raising their wages across the board. They are stepping in to set a minimum wage, impose it on themselves. Uh, that's not only market forces. That's also, I think, a reflection of the fact that the labor market is a social entity and worker morale is important. Uh, I think these companies will find that when they raise when they raise wages, they're going to get greater productivity from the workers. They'll have lower turnover. Uh, so uh, I think we're in a situation in the economy now where things are getting tight enough that companies are uh, raising wages. And I think they're doing it in a very interesting way which is imposing a floor on themselves, which highlights the way uh, the job market works, which is uh, social factors have a role to play in the job market.
0: So there are a couple of interesting things with both Walmart and McDonald's. Um, With Walmart, the data was that two-thirds of their employees already work in states that have a significantly higher minimum wage than the federal government. So this only affected a third of their employees. And with McDonald's, it was only at company-owned stores, which are 10% of their, uh, all the McDonald's in the country. There's, there's almost 15,000 McDonald's restaurants. Uh, 1,500 are, are company-owned. And so 90% of the stores, and assuming the math holds up, 90% of the employees are not necessarily affected by this company-owned mandate. So how significant is what these companies are doing? Does it vitiate the need for the minimum wage, which is still at seven and a quarter and has seemingly been there for decades, for there to be an increase in the minimum wage? And then we'll discuss what does raising the minimum wage do to uh, the economy?
1: I think what these companies have done uh, is an important step. I think it's an important symbol McDonald's, for example, cannot dictate wages to their franchisees. Uh, they're separate businesses in a legal sense. So the same way that they can't dictate prices, they always say at yeah, participating franchisees, Right. Uh, it's the same thing. Now, I hope that many of the franchises follow suit. And do we, do we have any
0: history? What happens when McDonald's does this? Do Obviously, not every franchise, but you would assume that this sort of leadership is going to drive a little more action.
1: Amongst the non-company-owned stores, we don't really have much experience with this. Oh. Uh, this is an unusual step that they've done. Uh, I hope it does drive action with uh, franchises. Uh, but it also highlights the need for the federal minimum wage to increase. That we- was
0: my my next question is, so what would happen if the feds took the minimum wage up to, you know, I've seen three numbers get bantied about and they're all kind of interesting. At $10 an hour, it's a significant increase in the states that haven't raised their minimum wage. At $12 an hour, essentially you get the inflation adjusted number from, pick your point, 68, 72, whatever it is. And then $15 an hour takes a full-time person working 40 hours a week and pretty much gets them up to a level. And we could talk about Walmart as well as the fast food industry where they're
1: no longer dependent on state and federal aid. I think doubling or more than doubling the minimum wage, it's a big step at once for companies to absorb. What we've seen in the past, if the minimum wage went up to the equivalent of $10 an hour, that's something that companies mostly can absorb. And in the past, when states have raised their minimum wage to that level after adjusting for inflation, we haven't seen uh, job losses. In fact, what we've seen is that employees have more money in their pockets than they spend that money, and that tends to help the economy overall. Net, net it's a, a, a
0: modest increase in minimum wage, or at least keeping up with inflation, isn't a job killer, because that's always the, the issue, right? People always say, there was a great study done where there was a change at a, a border, I think it was New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and on one side of the border, the minimum wage went up, and a mile across the border, there was another one. Describe what happened there.
1: Well, that was a study I did in the early 1990s with my colleague David Card, and to our surprise, I thought we were going to find that when New Jersey raised its minimum wage, the fast food restaurants would have grown more slowly, fewer of them would have opened. And In fact, we saw the opposite. They grew uh, at least as much, probably a little bit more than the fast food restaurants on the other side of the border. And we also found, if you look within the state, within New Jersey... The areas of the state where the minimum wage was already above the new minimum uh, and wages didn't rise, uh, they didn't grow as quickly as the parts of the state where wages were low and wages were boosted by the minimum wage. And I I should add, Barry, that, that was a study. I think that study was a turning point in research on the minimum wage. Most of the subsequent studies have reached the same conclusion, and there's been some work, uh, very careful work, looking across counties uh, using uh, government-reported data from uh, government tax records, for example, which tends to find the exact same result uh, that at modest levels, the kinds of levels that we've historically seen in the United States, minimum wage increases do not have an adverse effect on employment.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve. What started In the weeks before we recorded this was former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke launched a blog go figure the Fed chairman is blogging and kind of got into this epic debate with Lawrence Summers secretary of the Treasury in the first Obama White House about the concept of secular stagnation so so let's talk about all this stuff first What do you think about the Fed chief blogging?
1: I I think it's terrific that Ben Bernanke has started a blog. Um, He uh, has, I think, quite a bit to add to the public debate on these issues. Ben was a colleague of mine at Princeton for two decades. I learned a tremendous amount from him at the university. Uh, I worked with him when he was chairman of the Fed. Uh, So I look forward to reading what he has to say.
0: So and that Princeton Economics department, Bernanke, Kruger, Krugman, who, el- who else is in that department? It, it, Alan Blinder. Blinder. I mean, that's like the, you know, the murder's row on the Yankees back in the, in the old days. So let's talk secular stagnation. Larry Summers' thesis, and it's been uh, Bill Gross, The New Normal, and a lot of people have said this is, hey, we've come off a multi-decade period of growth and expansion, and now, post-crisis, it's going to be ugly for decades. What do you say about that?
1: I'm skeptical of of that view. Uh, I think the U.S. economy historically has managed to grow against a lot of obstacles. I think that will happen again. Uh, I think the financial crisis did have a lasting effect. On the other hand, I put a lot of confidence in the ingenuity of American entrepreneurs. You know, the sensation I always had coming out of the
0: financial crisis that was very 1970s-like. I was a teenager in the 70s. And I just, the word malaise really sums it up. And people in the 70s thought America was over. They never regained their mojo. And then the next thing you know, the 80s hit and everything from technology to semiconductors to the internet to mobile, the universe exploded. And, and that, it's always been a bad bet, uh, says my pal Larry Kudlow, betting against America. Is that a, is that a fair statement?
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you go back uh, to uh, uh, the end of World War II, there were economists who thought exactly what you just said, that malaise would set in. Uh, Even Paul Samuelson uh, thought we would slip back to a recession. And then others said, you know what? We've got very creative entrepreneurs. Uh, They'll figure out new products. There was a lot of pent-up demand coming out of the war then. Immigration helped to fuel the U.S. economy. And I think those forces can, can work again.
0: And and you know you go look at the equity markets from 1946 to 1966. That's an epic bull market. That's a huge run, only surpassed by the next malaise at 1982 to 2000. Another epic bull market. So let's turn our attention now to interest rates. Rates are low. They seem to be going lower. They're low around the world. Germany's interest rates are now below Japan's interest rates. If you wanna. Buy bonds um, from the Swiss. They will charge you for the privilege. It's a negative interest rate. We've never really seen an environment where rates are this low. And what does that mean about the economy? And what does it say to us about the impact of of central banks?
1: This has been an extraordinary period. There's no question. It's hard to believe there aren't sufficient investments that could be uh, taken by uh, private companies or by uh, the government. Uh, at such low interest rates that, that they would make a, a lot of sense. Uh, I think we're seeing some big imbalances in the world economy. Uh, this is a point that Ben Bernanke made about the global savings glut, uh, where we have uh, countries which are running up very big current account surpluses, and that's uh, depressing interest rates. Uh, but I think if you look at countries like, say, China, there's tremendous amount of scope for them to increase their domestic consumption I think as they slow, and I think here Larry Summers has done very good work uh, predicting a slowdown in growth rates in in China, uh, I think they're going to turn more towards domestic consumption to continue to keep people uh, happy, to make them feel like their situation is improving.
0: I've heard the complaint that, oh, it's the Federal
1: Reserve that has driven rates so low around the world. How do you respond to that? The Federal Reserve has carried out its dual mandate extremely well. It has a dual mandate to try to create maximum employment and and stable prices. Um, So create jobs and reduce uh, inflation. And keep inflation steady. Mm -hmm. It's shooting for around 2%. It's not too far off of that in the grand scheme of things. So uh, I think the Federal Reserve has helped the economy tremendously over the past five years. I think we're in a much stronger position than, say, Europe because of the actions our our central bank has taken.
0: You have a background in labor economics. You've done a lot of studies, a lot of really interesting things um, with labor. So let's talk a little bit about the labor force, this whole recovery. One of the things we hear all the time is,
1: gee, there's a lot of slack in the labor force. What does that mean for a layperson? Slack means that we're not using all the resources that we can be using. And the implication of Slack is that it put downward pressure on wages, which would then put downward pressure on inflation. Are we coming to the end of
0: the Slack period of of the cycle for for labor? Is is that
1: the positive read in this? I think we are. Uh, I think what we've seen with the decline in labor force participation is what you would expect given the aging of the workforce, given that women's labor force participation peaked in the early 2000s, um, and given that we had so many long-term unemployed, it's the natural evolution of the job market that they exit the labor force, and that's what's been taking place. So, so let's
0: describe this. When, when we look at the population, you have the total civilian population in the United States is 310 or so million people. We then have a labor force all the people who are either working or essentially looking for work at 155 or so, where are we, ballpark, 155 million. And then you have people who are leaving the labor force. They basically said either they're retiring or they just kind of give up on looking for a job. And people have been making a big deal about the declining participation rate in the labor force. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, Some of this is a function of just the aging of the baby boomers. You have 60,000 people a day retiring. And some of it is just the peak participation of women. Explain that a little bit.
1: What had been fueling our rise in labor force participation from the 1950s up until 2000 was more and more women joined the labor force. That reached a peak in 2000. It's a puzzle why labor force participation has since declined for women. It declined in the last recovery, so this is not new in the current recovery. And it's declined in a pretty broad base, Uh, well-educated women as well as less educated women, women with children, women who were not married and don't have children. So it's been a, a pretty ubiquitous phenomenon, and that had been fueling the rise in labor force participation. And now we're starting to see a little bit of a reversal of that. We've seen a little bit of a reversal over the last decade. So more recently,
0: the labor force participation rate seemed to stop falling and actually started to increase. Is this just a little noise in the data series or, or perhaps we're seeing
1: that drop come to a halt? Uh, I think that's noise. Uh, I think at best we could say labor force participation is stabilized. Maybe some of the young people who left the labor force to go back to school are coming back. I think mm-hmm. that's a positive sign. But that's against the backdrop, as you said, of Increasing number of baby boomers reaching the retirement age and retiring. So, we've been talking a little bit about baby boomers
0: and we've been talking about that post World War II era. Let's talk a bit about the middle class, which, based on what we've seen recently, almost appears to be a a post World War II phenomenon. Following World War II, you had everybody come back. You had all these uh, servicemen come back on the GI Bill, and it seemed we had this giant multi-decade boom, and the middle class just exploded in terms of size and wealth, and that seems to be unwinding. What's really going on with the middle class these days?
1: The middle class has been under a lot of pressure, and uh, we've seen the middle class shrink. I think that's unhealthy for the economy. I think it, it's one of the reasons why we are facing problems when it comes to aggregate demand, because the middle class tends to spend their income, unlike uh, very high-income people who have a higher savings rate. And I think it's bad for the country because I think our country works better when we have a broad middle with a common interest. So when we look at the people who are
0: doing best in the country, the, the top 1% has done really well. Top 10% has done pretty well. But when we take the top 1% of the top 1%, the 0.01%, they've done phenomenally well. What What is behind that
1: trend? They've done well uh, in part because, uh, there are uh, people there who have come up with new products, uh, very innovative uh, people, in part because they're people who inherited wealth. And increasingly, that top 10th of 1% are going to be those who inherited their wealth as opposed to those who were successful entrepreneurs. But also, we've seen enormous changes in the bottom 99%. You know, if you look along education lines, uh, I find the following calculation quite revealing If you took the top 1% and said, we're going to keep their income at the same share as it was in 1979 and redistributed that to the bottom 99%, if one could, uh, that would raise the average family's income by about $7,000 a year. But if you then compare uh, a family where you have a household headed by a college graduate versus a household headed by a high school graduate... The difference in their earnings since 1979 uh, has increased by $23,000, over wow. three times as much. So it's not only the top 1% that's causing the shifts in inequality that we're seeing and putting pressure on the middle class. You know, one of the fascinating
0: stats I saw related to that was the unemployment rate amongst people with college degrees, and then the unemployment rate amongst people with graduate degrees or science, technology, engineering, or mathematics degrees. It was low, low single digits, even when the unemployment rate was 8 9%. It was in the twos. Quite amazing that there's a, such a strong demand for those sort of uh, employees.
1: Increasingly, the U.S. economy has been demanding workers with higher levels of skills. And you see that really throughout the distribution, uh, not just graduate degrees, but if you compare people who have skills in manufacturing, skills in welding, they're doing better than people who have... Uh, or just a high school degree and not a specific training in an area.
0: BLS, one of the things we talked a little bit about the Bureau of Labor Statistics earlier, I found that anytime I had a question about a report or anything that came out, I had the ability to pick up the phone and actually get that economist on the phone who would walk me through what they did. Is this pretty standard operating procedure there? I, I was astonished by that.
1: BLS is a very transparent organization. They're there to help. They want people to understand what it is that they're doing. They don't want people to misinterpret their data. So they're very open in that, in that way.
0: What is it like producing the sort of data they crank out every month? How, how many economists and statisticians work there? And
1: what is the process like creating those models? Well, it's more data than models. You know, it's really more uh, interviewing households, interviewing businesses. For the unemployment report, the Census Bureau, on the behalf of the BLS, goes door-to-door to to over 50,000 households. That's every month? Every month. Now, they don't go door-to-door every month. They go door-to-door the first time they interview them. Then they say, next month, is it okay if we call you? Mm -hmm. But on a rotating basis, they're interviewing over 50,000 households a month, uh, giving them a short questionnaire. And then they're processing the data, uh, screening out mistakes uh, uh, if somebody misreported their income, for example, uh, and then producing the unemployment rate and related statistics. This is all done by career employees. Uh, They don't inform the administration about the results until the night before uh, the data are released to the public.
0: So So the president gets a
1: phone call... Hey,
0: tomorrow's non-farm payroll, $125,000. He finds that out 12 hours before everybody
1: else. The president uh, receives a visit from the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers. Oh, really? Uh, with a memo in hand describing uh, what the next day's report will be. The chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, receives uh, a, a one-page sheet. Uh, called the Chairman's Data Sheet, with some of the key statistics that are going to come out the next day, uh, also provided by the Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, as does the Treasury Secretary. So, so I picture someone with the
0: briefcase that's handcuffed to the, uh, the the secret agent walking into the Federal Reserve, walking into the White House. It's really not that uh, cloak and dagger, is it? Well, it's a secure, secure fax. A secure fax. Oh, that's fascinating. And... Um, One of the things I found fascinating about the BLS was about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, they changed the birth-death model, and this caused all sorts of of mayhem amongst the uh, tinfoil hat types. For people who aren't economic wonks, what is the birth-death adjustment?
1: Well, this is really inside baseball, but in the establishment survey that the BLS does every month, they don't do a very good job bringing in new companies, or if a company has failed, they don't know for sure that it failed. Maybe it just failed to respond. It doesn't mean necessarily it's gone out of business. So to adjust for the births and the deaths, they have an additive factor. It could be positive, could be negative, and that's based on information that's coming in from payroll tax records, where the BLS could judge how far off it's been in recent months and use that to make an adjustment. I think the outside world tends to focus a lot on the birth-death model uh, as uh, opposed to uh, the data that's coming in, and the data that's coming in from the establishments are really much more important than the birth-death adjustment. We had terrible news this
0: week with the passing of the great economist Alan Kruger. It was my privilege of speaking with him in the spring of 2015, and this is a continuation of that conversation where we get more in-depth and get into the weeds about economics, the Federal Reserve, and the labor markets. My guest today, Professor Alan Kruger. Not Krugman, not Alan Blinder, Professor Alan Kruger. People get that wrong all the time, don't they? All the time. Krugman and I, we get each other's mail. True story, about 10 years ago, I, my office was 300 Park Avenue. I have a cousin with the same name as me, Barry Ritholtz. He's a lawyer. He was working for Golden Tree Mutual Funds. There's no T at the end of his name, so he's OLZ. And we're in the same building, and we would get each other's mail. What are the odds that someone with the same name? And it's not, you know, if you're John Smith, statistically right. But uh, it was just always, uh, always sort of, sort of fun. So Kruger, not Krugman. um, I have so many other things I want to, I want to talk to you about before we have to send you on, on your way. We talked a lot of, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of errors people have. What, what do you think about economics or the BLS data or whatever? What do you think is the biggest misconception about economics out there?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a misconception. There's kind of a, a paranoia that the BLS is a tool of the administration and is pressured to come up with uh, particular results. And, you know, I mean, former,
0: I'll say this, former GE CEO Jack Welsh, right before the November 2012 election, there was a fairly decent employment number, and he infamously tweeted out, hey, those Chicago guys will do anything to win an election. They doctored these numbers, And, and people were really astonished about it. He ultimately ended up getting pissy with fortune, quitting, storming off. How often do you run into- Oh, the president is manipulating these numbers.
1: What was unusual about that episode, and I remember it very well. It was October of uh, two thousand twelve. The unemployment rate fell from eight point one to seven point eight percent, and he not a giant drop, a,
0: a fairly a healthy
1: fall, but not anything
0: ridiculous.
1: Well, certainly looked, certainly look, not unprecedented. Look at it with hindsight. It's now five and a half percent. We were clearly on a path then when the economy mm-hmm. was getting better and he was denying it. Um, and uh, I was uh, asked to respond to what he said. And I'll, I said then what I'll say today. No serious person doubts the credibility of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That It's,
0: it's a civil servant group. It's not political appointees. Only one person in BLS is a presidential appointee. That's you said all earlier the commissioner and all these people are just lifetime economists, statisticians, and others. Look, the the numbers may not be perfect, but it's not some grand. The president is telling them now. We to be fair, we've seen massive changes in the way things are done that have had a tendency to have an upward bias. We we talk about uh, the civilian labor force when. You had a, a chain, was it, I don't remember if it was Korean War or Vietnam, Vietnamese War. Somebody changed how that was counted to not include military and it had a beneficial effect. There have been tweaks like that.
1: Look, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics makes changes, it does it in a very deliberate fashion, usually with an outside group giving it advice. It made a major change in 1994 when it redesigned the survey, which probably raised the measured unemployment rate. So... Uh, it certainly makes changes to try to keep up with changes that are going on in the economy or to improve its measures, but it would not make a change in the middle of an election.
0: And and I've noticed that whenever they make a change, there's an there's a footnote six months before we're reviewing this, we're taking comments about that. Here's the proposed set of changes. I've been critical of the over-focus on the BLS number because, it's a series and everybody obsesses about each month when you really have to look at the long-term trend and you could have a really good number, or a really bad number in any given month that's still within that channel and being off of the average very often is just noisy. And as you've mentioned, the upward revisions, so so the most recent non-farm payroll, um, I believe was a pretty soft number and some of the revisions were kind of negative also. Now, is that the beginning of the end, or does that look just like it's a
1: noisy data series? I thought we were due for a zinger. And, uh, you know, what are the odds that you'd get 12 months in a row over 200,000 if the true underlying growth was over 200,000? It's not all that high. So uh, it's not a surprise to me in a way that we we see one number which is out of line. Um, we get and, two or three more in a row hey, that's a problem. Two or three more of unemployment insurance claims start to pick up if some of the other indicators come in. Uh, let, come let me in jump
0: weak. in on that because before, in my office we were previewing these numbers and talking about this conversation, and my head of research said, hey, be sure to say to Professor Kruger, see if he's familiar, with the fact that we're at some crazy record low for initial unemployment claims. I think he said it's back to 99 where
1: we haven't seen lows like this in 15 years is is that accurate? Weekly initial claims are very low. Uh, I think we have seen them this low in the, in the recovery, but they're at the lowest point that they've been in the recovery. You know, one thing I'll add, Barry, when I worked uh, in the administration, uh, I reached the conclusion that the UI claims are very informative, and we haven't changed the information that are coming out with the UI claims in 50 years. Why don't we try to extract more from it. Which industries are laying off people? What education groups? Which age groups? And that's something which the Labor Department has been looking into, uh, into doing. So in other words, take the
0: data and try and slice it a little finer by, by sector, by education
1: level, by geography. Exactly. What, what else do you look at there? Well, those are the main things. A- and um, they do produce it by geography already. They do that with a week delay. Uh, so that's already available. But I think we could learn a lot from industry because we know that manufacturing and construction tend to be more cyclical industries, and in some sense, they're leading indicators. So I think we can extract more uh, from these data, and also knowing about the demographics uh, I think would be very helpful.
0: So let's talk briefly about the nonfarm payroll. Uh, You know, it's considered a a coincidental or lagging indicator. It lags the business cycle, but there are parts of it that I always find fascinating within within the nonfarm payroll data. I've always found the numbers for temp help to be very insightful because if companies are unsure about where we are in the economic growth cycle, but they're starting to see a slight uptick in demand, they might hire a bunch of temp workers, and hey, if it works out, they become full-time workers. I've argued that that's a little bit of a leading indicator. How wrong am I?
1: Uh, I was going to say you're pretty much in line with the research. Okay. And the research has found that temporary help trends are a leading indicator. And then what about
0: um, hours worked? That's another thing. When you start to see the hours tick up, it's always easier to say to somebody who's got 20 or 30 hours, hey, here's a little more time instead of going out and hiring a brand new person.
1: Well, hours worked are extremely important for a number of reasons. One, uh, because it says how much labor is being utilized in production. And that can be more important if you have a two-tenths, three-tenths of an hour increase uh, in weekly hours, that could be more important than the headline jobs number in terms of total labor input. It's also important to people because it affects the income that they're receiving. So I closely watch hours worked. And one thing I'll mention, which I don't think has gotten enough attention, is everyone's focused on the slack that's coming from workers who are part-time who want mm-hmm. to be full-time. But hours worked are actually reasonably high and back to where they were before the recession. That was the question. So where
0: are hours worked? Because I remember 09, 10, when you're coming out of the, we were in like thirty point one in that range. I don't remember if we got below thirty, but it was
1: really the bottom of, of the thirties. Where are hours work now? They're back to where they were in two thousand and eight, and if you draw a pre-crisis, tr- pre-crisis, uh, uh, two thousand seven, they're back to where they were in two thousand seven. How many is that per week on average? Uh, it's in the thirties, but I couldn't tell upper you upper thirties, mid thirties, because no, I normally
0: it, should know this off the top of my head, and I don't. So he's going for the secret facts that he got going, from the labor department. <laughs> no, what I
1: was. Well, on we just saw this Tom Keen show. I got some blue sheets which had it, but I don't. I'll, I'll pull don't it recall. up while, while we're talking. It's thirty something.
0: So, but it's a significant improvement, and we're back it's to pre-crisis, and levels. it's back
1: to the trend that we were on prior to the crisis. It's the, actually so a little in other above words, that trend. It's going higher. Yes.
0: So we've returned to trend, and
1: so that's kind of that's
0: kind of fascinating.
1: So I don't think there's that much hidden slack in terms of work hours. So you
0: had mentioned, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Fed. You had mentioned you thought the Fed had done a really good job. You know, what didn't happen this recovery, whether it's the Fed or Congress or what have you, that would have made it
1: better, faster, stronger? Well, I think Congress made a major mistake with the sequester. We cut back discretionary spending. We did it in an arbitrary way. We should be investing more in research and development, more in infrastructure, more in education. And Congress cut that back. Uh, On top of that, I think Congress could have extended the payroll tax cut into 2013. We had it in 2011 and 2012. Uh, Why? Is this still that just mad
0: pursuit of austerity, that misguided pursuit of austerity? Has that argument been laid to rest when you see the austerity put in place by Europe and the much more moderate austerity in the United States, how the two two regions had recovered?
1: Uh, I don't know if it's been put to rest, but I certainly uh, take that as pretty strong evidence that the U.S. is doing better because we pursued a different fiscal policy and a different monetary policy for that matter. But we were pretty, in terms of historical fiscal
0: stimulations, you had the, the stimulus plan, but it was different than previous stimulus plans in that A big chunk of it was temporary. It was temporary tax cuts. It was temporary unemployment extensions. It wasn't like a massive infrastructure build out. And then you had all these ongoing layoffs at the state and local level. So net-net, up until only a few months ago, total government hiring um, has been a drag on employment.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you look at the big picture, which is government spending, including state and local together with federal... The stimulus only lasted about three quarters. It was just uh, the end of 2009, early 2010. And since then, it's been phasing out. One might have said in 2009 that a risk of the stimulus was that it would become permanent, but that hasn't happened. And if you look at state and local governments, while they were receiving support from the Recovery Act, from the stimulus bill, they weren't laying off teachers and firefighters and police. And it was only after that money ran out that we saw layoffs reach really historically high levels in the state and local government sector.
0: Right. And when we look at the 2001 recovery, that was a huge additive to to what the economy was
1: doing. 2001 and the early 80s. So only Democrats seem to be uh, uh, president when fiscal policy is working against the recovery. Well,
0: Well, my argument has long been that the party out of power, and I hope I'm not engaging in any false equivalency here, but the party out of power always complains about budgets and deficits and... You know, they're arguing, what they're really doing is arguing against the policy of, of the opposing party, and Republicans do it and, and Democrats do it. It just seems that this time with this president, it was an effective argument that had gained traction from people who previously were the furthest thing in the world from deficit hawks. You know, if you supported uh, Medicare Section D and unfunded tax cuts and, and a war of choice in Iraq, you're spending a lot of money. I'm not arguing about those policies. You're not a deficit hawk if you're going to deficit spend for those things. When the roles reverse, who's in the White House, suddenly you become very concerned about debt and deficits. It it seems a little disingenuous.
1: Oh, it's even worse than that, in that it wasn't only the war that was costing money. It was also adding Medicare Part D, prescription drugs, huge, without paying spend, for it, right. and cutting taxes in large measure for high-income earners, uh, and also without offsetting that with spending cuts elsewhere. So uh, I, I guess I'd take a somewhat more partisan view, having worked for President Clinton and President Obama. You know, President Clinton signed a, a balanced budget act, a uh, fiscally responsible act, President Obama wanted to address the drivers of our deficit, which is health care costs and entitlements. That was part of the grand bargain negotiations with oh, Speaker Boehner. Along
0: with military spending was a, was a big issue that had, had an impact in the sequester.
1: Right. That's right. Um, but military spending's winding down on its own. It's been coming down on its own as we um, reduce our engagement in the Middle East. So... Uh, you know, Actually, if you look at the trends, it's quite remarkable because we saw a pretty sharp decline in military spending in 2012, 2013, and that was a drag on the economy. Ultimately, I think it's better for those resources to be used for civilian purposes. Uh, but we haven't really addressed the drivers of the deficit in spite of the emphasis on austerity because we haven't done much to address the long-run entitlement costs and health care costs. So that seems to be
0: a, a partisan policy debate where the philosophies are so far apart, there's almost not a, you know, normally you can horse trade a little bit. Back in the days of of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, there was a lot of back and forth, and they weren't so far apart that I got something, you got something. All right, we come up with some uh, a policy that everybody can live with, declare victory, and move on to the next thing as the parties get further and further apart, and I I don't know if I would argue that both parties aren't moving away from the center at an equal pace. As a former Republican, I could tell you that the right has moved further away from the middle much faster than the left has. Um, I haven't changed my, you know, I grew up a Jacob Javits Republican, which today puts me to far to the left of you know, anybody who's a Democrat and half of the, anyone who's a Republican and half of the Democrats. By the way, I just pulled up the BLS data. Manufacturing work week decreased at 0.1 it. hours to 40.9. Manufacturing work, work week's always longer. And then um, total uh, employees on private non-farm payrolls. 34. declined 0.1 to
1: 34.5. Yep.
0: So, but that's still substantially above where we began. Uh, 34
1: and a half is normal. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that, about average? That—that's that, that's, I would say that's about where you would predict we should be based on the trend before the recession.
0: Factory overtime, 3.4 hours. Is that considered substantial? With- it's high. That's high.
1: And, you know, the uh, durable goods sector has made a remarkable recovery. You look at the auto sector, it's made a remarkable recovery in this uh Economic climate.
0: So let let's talk about that because it brings to mind a really fascinating conversation I had with Jonathan Miller, who is a, um, one of the best known real estate appraisers. He's on all the time with Tom and others. Wherever credit is tight, that sector is doing poorly, and wherever there's loosening of credit, such as automobiles, you know, people are now saying, "Hey, we have a subprime problem in automobiles." We're on a pace to sell 17 million automobiles in the United States. That's a record number, even as total miles driving still. I think, are we still below where we were pre crisis? I think so. There, there was a huge dip. We've recovered some
1: of it. I think we're about halfway back. But that's a massive number, 17 million. It's remarkable. I mean, it shows how much pent up demand there was. And it also shows, I think, that our auto companies are doing a better job. They're producing better cars. If you look at Chrysler today, it's a totally different kind of car. And now owned by Fiat instead of... Uh, and same thing with GM.
0: When you look at GM, I'm not a GM guy, but I have to tell you, the 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 uh, Cadillacs that have come out are really nice. The new Corvette is a spectacular car. And their competition for the Camry and the Accord, um, it begins with an L, and I'm not accessing that word. Lexus? No, no, no. The Chevy Lumina, oh. is it? Maybe it's Lumina. Oh, no, it's the um, Impala, the new Impala. You think of Impala, you think of a giant car, but it's their Camry slash Honda Accord competitor. They're winning all sorts of awards. It's amazing how far the U.S. auto industry has come post-bailout.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I actually just wrote a new study together with Austin Goolsbee, who was my predecessor as chairman of the CEA, on the auto bailout. And it has been far more successful than we expected in 2009.
0: Um, I find Austin to be a fascinating guy. I was on a panel with him in, in Las Vegas some years ago about the bailouts, and the conversation was, why don't we do for the banks what we had done for GM and Chrysler? You know, it always seems that when there's a Wall Street person as um, treasury, in, in the chief treasury department, Wall Street gets treated well. When you get a—like you did in the most of the prior century— when you have an industrialist or a manufacturer or somebody from that side of um, the economy, Wall Street doesn't seem to get bailed out. The manufacturers get bailed out. Is that just the nature of people protecting their own industry? Or asked differently, why did we not treat the banks the way we treated GM and Chrysler?
1: Well, it's a very good question. Uh, First of all, Uh, I was involved when uh, Tim Geithner was secretary, and Tim really is not a Wall Street person. He was a public servant. He spent his whole career at at Treasury or the IMF or then the New York Fed.
0: But people have accused him as president of the New York Fed being very close to Wall Street. Is, Is that not an accurate description?
1: You know, I think he should be judged by his actions, and I think he was consistent in the principles that he applied to the bailout to the extent that he could have been he was constrained by the law uh, i think he did a remarkable job uh, protecting taxpayers you know all of the money came back and then some of the money that went to the financial sector during the bailout uh, he protected our system of uh, the uh, hierarchy for investors and bond investors and senior uh, uh, creditors uh, and i think our recovery is a lot stronger because of the very difficult decisions that he, he was forced to make. Um, the uh, role of banks, I think, is pretty special in the economy. So I think one could make uh, a case for treating the financial sector differently in the midst of a financial panic. Um, the problems that the auto companies were facing were very long in the making and they needed to restructure. It was not just a, a temporary uh, problem that they were facing because of a run on banks, uh, which was, uh, in, in some sense, the, the issue in the financial sector. So uh, I think one could fault the financial bailout. Personally, I would have liked to have seen us put more restrictions uh, on the banks when it came to lending. I would have liked to have seen some requirements, which eventually were put on. They were were done. For example, in the Small Business Lending Fund to encourage banks to lend more to small businesses. Uh, I would have liked to have seen the executive compensation restrictions last longer. Um, but having said that, uh, I think the stress tests and the um, uh, use of TARP funds uh, did rescue the system, d- did uh, make it possible for the recovery to begin. So. Uh, two, two
0: bullet points, uh, uh, one observation and, and a, then a question I have to ask you. One of my, I'm an automotive enthusiast. I love cars. My mother will tell you car was literally the first word I ever said, and one of the sites I used to read all the time, I mean, long before the financial crisis, was called The Truth About Cars, and they had a segment called GM Bankruptcy Watch Part 1 through you know 200, and they were saying... Here's the math. It's unsustainable. GM can't keep generous pension, generous health care, nine levels of executives. They can't operate like this. It's a house of cards that has to collapse. And it turned out that was accurate. But so the restructuring and the bailout and the resurrection of GM and Chrysler turned out to be a great thing for the economy, a great thing for the auto sector. So here's the question I always ask about the banks Yes. Banks are important. Banks are special. And that's why we can't allow insolvent banks to put the entire system at risk. We can't allow crazy leverage. We can't allow reckless spending and lending and speculation to put the economy at risk. So here's what the counterfactual I want to ask is. What would have happened early in the financial crisis if, so let's refresh people's timeline. You had March 08, you had Bear Stearns go under, and, and the Federal Reserve uh, essentially guaranteed to J.P. Morgan they would backstop Bear's books, and it was sold first for $2 a share, then $10 a share. It turned out to be a phenomenal acquisition for J.P. Morgan, a huge home run. Then as we worked our way through the summer, things started to get a little dicey. We had issues with Fannie and Freddie and the GSEs. I'm still not convinced that the American taxpayers been made whole. There were tax waivers given, um, and offsets. And Fannie and Freddie have been throwing off a lot of money. I don't know if that's break even. I think AIG is now break even, even including the tax benefits they got. I'm not positive about that. So we're almost, but not quite, made whole. We certainly didn't get the benefits of that very risky investment. If I was an investor, hey, here's a, a, a here's tr- uh, billions of dollars. One day I hope to break even on it. Uh, not not what Wall Street typically looks for, but the counterfactual is what would have happened if we would have said to Citibank, "Okay, you guys have had problems every twenty years it seems. Let's temporarily put you into receivership, with Uncle Sam acting as the debtor, you know, creditor in possession, the 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 provider of um, the creditor acting as." Um, offering all of the, the debt funding during this reorganization, we'll wipe out the shareholders, we'll give a haircut to the bondholders, we'll fi- fire that top level of senior management who clearly have driven the the bus off the off the road into the into the lake. And we'll spin them out as a as a brand new entity. Same thing with Bank of America. The argument I used to say is we'll clean up Merrill Lynch, we'll get rid of their debt, we'll spin them out as a freestanding entity. We'll take Countrywide, the biggest mortgage underwriters, will clean them up, we'll spin them out. They're now a freestanding, debt-free, clean company. We'll take Bank of America, same thing. Then we'll take all of this, what people are calling toxic debt, which is on toxic assets, which is really a bet that's toxic at 100 cents on the dollar. But there's some price, 10, 15, 20 cents, where that's a good investment, and we'll auction that off, and net-net, we'll go—we'll tear the Band-Aid off, we'll go through this painful process— but then we'll be much healthier on the other side.
1: What's wrong with that counterfactual? I think there are a few things. And fortunately, the economy didn't get so bad that that was necessary. There was something- How how close were we to that point though? People have said we were, the phrase I heard from Ben Bernanke was, we were staring into the abyss. We were staring into the abyss. There's no question we were staring into the abyss. Uh, How close did we come? Well, the turning point was the stress tests. So had the stress tests shown that a city was as insolvent as you uh, suggested, uh, I think a different course of action would have been taken. But given that the stress test helped things to turn around, given that the stress tests provided investors with the information that they needed and the confidence that they had that they could invest, given that city was able to raise money at that time, was able to uh, uh, well raise money from the government no, or which private money. Tr- which stress
0: money. test are we talking about?
1: What the stress test was at uh, March of '09. But I'm talking
0: October in October '08 oh. when the when the TARP was first right. passed. If that
1: money didn't go to these banks, they if that were money toast. didn't go to the banks, the, the but but had we pursued the strategy that you laid out, uh, taxpayers would have paid much much more. Instead of actually making money on these TARP investments, they would have lost hundreds of billions of dollars. Where and where, I,
0: where would those losses have come from?
1: The losses would have come from wiping out the debt that you mentioned, from recapitalizing the banks with mm-hmm. government money. Uh, on top of that. I think you would be looking at at least five years, maybe a decade of having those having those companies under government receivership. That
0: long, it's not a twelve month or an eighteen month process. Clean them up, and then take them public again.
1: Look at some of the bank failures that we've seen. They've taken they've taken years, and that's banks that are one hundredth as large uh, right. as as Citi. On top of that, uh, had uh, Treasury done what? Some people were, in my view, irresponsibly urging the Treasury to do, which was to take over those banks. We would have seen a run on other banks, and it would have made the problem much worse. If you're going to wipe out the shareholders of City, what are you going to do if you're a shareholder of Bank of America? You're going to sell. That's going to make Bank of America's problems much worse, uh, and then so on down the line. So I think we would have seen um, a, um, a wave of bank failures, which would have cost the taxpayers billions of dollars and which would have set the recovery back years.
0: So you think this was the healthier way to proceed? So I always I think, in at
1: retrospect, th- there's no question. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say um, uh, that it was a mistake because it cost taxpayers so much money, but it hasn't in the end. Well, it, it, the taxpayers had a lot of money at risk, and
0: now we know, with the benefit of hindsight, all or nearly all, or maybe even a little more than all, have has been recovered. So net, net, it the cost to the taxpayers was not great. The risk to taxpayer money was fairly high. So, the question I want to ask is you know, pre crisis, we had, and I understand Sweden is much smaller than the United States, but we had the Swedish approach, which was throw everybody into receivership, clean them up, spin them out. And then we had the Japanese approach, which is hey, we have these vertically stacked Karitsus, and you can't kill back a Mitsubishi because you have Mitsubishi heavy industries and Mitsubishi aerospace and Mitsubishi real estate on top of that. And to, to go Swedish in the United States would have wiped out Goldman Sachs, um, Macy's, Morgan. General Motor. Right. To, it, it would have been that sort of collapse. But why did this sort of thing work in other countries with financial crises? Is it just that Sweden is so much smaller than us? Their financial crisis was just so much more you know manageable or or
1: what is philosophically different there i think sweden had maybe four major banks mm-hmm. you know it's just a totally different scale and don't delude yourself taxpayers would have been at tremendous risk if the government would have taken over the major banks in the us so it's not as if a risky strategy was pursued and it paid off and you got to take into account the cost of the risk there was risk on either side so it's it was a choice amongst risky strategies it was the
0: least bad solution. The least bad solution. So let, let's go back to the Fed a second. What else should the Fed have done? And, and I have to remind people, there were many very creative, very innovative policies put into place. If anybody was going to be the perfect Fed chairman, it was the guy who was the student of the Great Depression and who was committed to not repeating those mistakes. So it, what else could or should the Fed
1: have done post-crisis? A couple of things. And uh, first of all, I think the Fed could have done more to prevent the crisis. It could have raised lending standards. And that's something that Ned Gramlich had advocated Absolutely. for within the Fed. And I think it had to do with the mindset of the Fed, which is probably still there, that the banks could regulate themselves, that they didn't need to be very proactive. So, so let,
0: let's back. Let me interrupt you right here. Ed Gramlich was a Fed governor who had gone to Alan Greenspan, who was the Fed chairman, and said, "We have a problem. We have a problem with subprime lending. We have a problem with predatory loans. We have banks mending, making loans to people who clearly can't pay them back. And when these default, it's going to cause a." Domino, Cascade, and and Ed, unfortunately, passed away before the crisis, but it turned out all of his warnings were tremendously
1: prescient. He was 100 percent correct. That's absolutely right. And the Fed had it within their purview to say, we're going to require 10 percent down payment. And if you had 10 percent down payment, the value of a house falls by 6, 7 percent. The owner is not underwater. And you're in a very different situation than if you have loans with nothing down or 1%, 2% down.
0: There were actually cash out home purchases where you could buy a house and take a second at the same time. So you walk into the house, $50,000 richer, no skin in the game and every incentive to walk away.
1: That's right. So I do hold the Fed responsible uh, for a very core component of the crisis. Not, Not exclusively, but they certainly were a major factor. Look, I mean, if the private sector didn't have the collective delusion that home prices would continue to grow, we wouldn't have had the crisis, too. So there were many uh, factors that led to the crisis. I don't think that one could say there was a single cause. On the recovery, um, I think where I would fault the Fed was in prematurely ending uh, quantitative easing. You would have extended it further? Uh, Not QE3 okay uh, but say q e two so I would have had a more continuous q e two I think they took their foot off the uh, the the gas a little bit too soon, uh, and that's led to this stop and start in terms of in terms of q e
0: so i I know we don't have you for very much longer let let me ask you one more related question on the Fed. Bill Gross had an interesting observation about Fed rates, and he said, you know if the Fed didn't take rates down to zero, had they stopped at one percent. It would have allowed the economy to appear a little more normal. It would have allowed them to have a little more flexibility. And then all the screaming about ZERP and zero bound and everything else would have gone away. And the process of normalizing uh, Federal Reserve policy would have been a little easier. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I find that argument hard to accept given that the Taylor rule says we should have negative rates. So the Fed went as far as it could go, and then it actually reinvented the playbook by going to quantitative easing. So uh, to me, that argument doesn't make much sense. And I think we've seen some countries make that mistake, and then they decide to go all the way down to zero or as close as they can go. So in the
0: final few minutes we have, let me ask you um, one or two more questions. And, and I have my favorite question I ask everybody. First, um, what shifts do you see coming up? What what are people not really thinking about that they really might, should be aware
1: of? Well, I'm sure people are thinking about it, but demographic shifts are having a tremendous effect on the U.S. Slower growth in the working age population, uh, slower rate of immigration to the U.S. Uh, I think uh, we missed a major uh, opportunity to reform our immigration system, a disappointed that Congress wasn't able to pass a bill. The Senate bill, which was not a perfect bill, would have been a big improvement over our current system. Um, And I think businesses need to give a lot of thought to how the aging of the U.S. population, the slower uh, uh, or or decline in labor force participation of women, how that's going to affect their business model. How can they make work more flexible so they can uh, attract more workers? And then- My final question, I ask everybody the same thing, and
0: I'll I'll ask you this. What do you know about your profession about economics today
1: that you wish you understood when you first started out? Oh, there are a lot of things. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, the economics profession is an amazing uh, amazing field. Economics, for me, was attractive because it's about people. It's about what matters in people's lives. And I don't think there's anything more important than having a job so you can support a family. Uh, so that's why I went into labor economics. Uh, I think we don't have enough diversity of views in economics. I think people cling very tightly to their views and maybe that's human nature. People are slow to update, to change their mind in spite of uh, evidence. And uh, I think it would be healthier for economics if we took a broader view. Just just one very simple area is more economic history. Uh, we tend not to emphasize economic history in graduate education and economics. And the crisis that we lived through had many elements in common with past financial crises. And I think one would have done very well to understand Charles Kindleberger's work, work on manias mm-hmm. and panics and crashes, uh, understand the Great Depression. Uh, so I'd like to see economic history become uh, uh, part of the core in economics.
0: You know, there's, there's the old quote, Wall Street people are notorious about failing to learn from the past. Um, and there are all sorts of variations of that. If someone wanted to find your work, um, where would they go? How do they how do they
1: track down the things you're producing? I have a web page which has all of my research on it, princeton.edu And uh, the link there will, will bring people to my research. So that was my interview with Alan Krueger from the spring of 2015.
0: Earlier this week, we learned some unfortunate news. Uh, He took his own life, and we were deeply saddened by the loss. It really was a privilege being able to sit down with him. One other thing I have to share about Alan Krueger, I was fortunate enough to have lunch with him before my interview with Serena Williams, where he fed me a bunch of, of questions Uh, I've only been playing tennis a few years. He's been playing for a lifetime. And he was just so generous with his time and so kind and helpful. Uh, He helped make not only his interview great, but the interview that I did with Serena uh, that much better. Just a charming, generous, wonderful man, and, and he will be greatly missed. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.